person may be unknown or known. Who really knows? Only the offender knows. There is no doubt that everyone in a missing child investigation is a suspect until proven differently. The offender in such crimes is a sneaky, complex offender who has hidden his or her desires for some time and has chosen to act on those desires. That was part of the opening address from counsel assisting the coroner, Jared Craddock, as the coronial inquest into William Tyrrell's disappearance resumed in Sydney this week. It's five years next month since William, at the age of three, vanished from his foster grandmother's front yard in 2014 in Kendall on the New South Wales mid-north coast. His disappearance is one of Australia's most baffling mysteries. But this week, a few key details were confirmed. Police said at the inquest that they believe William was abducted and most likely by a stranger who took him from the scene in a car. But they still have no idea where William is and have no forensic evidence and no key suspects. It seems more than ever there are more questions than answers and anything is possible. In this episode, we'll look in more detail about what was heard at the inquest, including that car used in the suspected abduction of William. Also, who's set to be called to testify, the new persons of interest and why police are calling for some witnesses to be given extra protection. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Leah, let's recap firstly about the coronial inquest. It has resumed this week, but it started earlier this year. Why was the coronial inquest into William's disappearance called? The coronial inquest was called last year, and that was after more than four years of investigation into William's disappearance. The then lead detective, Gary Jubelin, and the coroner decided it was time to test all the evidence in a court. Now, they didn't have enough evidence, uh, as we know, to put it in a criminal court to charge anyone with the crime. So the only other option is to put it before a coroner's court, and that's what they decided to do. So the inquest actually started in March this year. It was set down for a week. We heard evidence from both sides of William's family, the foster parents and the birth parents, as well as a lot of testimony around that initial ground search for him. It was then suspended and resumed again this week. Could that possibly be seen as a strategy that they don't have enough evidence, particularly because there isn't any forensic evidence to arrest a suspect, so they'll push it to a coronial inquest? It absolutely can be used as a strategy. It can put pressure on potential persons of interest. It can it gives them the power to put someone in a witness box and compel them to testify and they are under oath. They are required to tell the truth by law. So it does allow them to use those tools to elicit information. Leah, let's talk about the counsel assisting the coroner in this inquest. His name is Jared Craddock. We heard him at the beginning of this episode. What is his position and role in this coronial inquest? So Mr Craddock is a very senior, highly experienced lawyer. All counsels assisting the coroner usually are very experienced. And his role is to present all the evidence to the coroner for her to assess. It's important to note he does not work for the police force. He doesn't work for any particular party. His role is to take all the evidence that police have gathered, sort through it all, 
and decide which witnesses need to be called and then he also questions them in the court to elicit the testimony he thinks the coroner needs to hear. So he does work for the Justice Department. He works for the court and he obtains the information from all the parties, collates it for the coroner and presents it to her for her to then make a finding based on that evidence. So who was at the coronial inquest? Both sides of William's family attended on at least one day, the birth family, including the birth father, his mother, so William's birth grandmother, and William's birth mother all attended on the first day. His foster mother was also there attending on the first day. And interestingly, also was formerly Detective Gary Jubelin. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, Gary led this investigation uh, for around about four years before he was taken off the case in January amid allegations of misconduct. He has since resigned from the police force and been criminally charged with illegally recording conversations with a person of interest in this case. Despite all that, he did attend the inquest as a private citizen. He sat in the public gallery while his replacement, Detective Chief Inspector David Laidlaw, sat up front overseeing the hearing. Leah, Williams' foster parents have spoken to you quite passionately about their desire for Gary Jubelin, the former Detective Chief Inspector and head of this investigation, to testify and give evidence at this coronial inquest. We'll get to that in a moment, but can we start by detailing the information? The coroner made it very specific about the non-publication orders of Williams' family in this ongoing inquest. Yeah, before the inquest actually even began, the counsel assisting the coroner, Jared Craddock, mentioned that there had been a breach of those non-publication orders protecting the identities of the family members of William Tyrrell. And that led to the coroner reiterating those strict non-publication orders and saying that any offenders would be prosecuted. And that comes after our last episode. We mentioned that there had been people breaking the law by posting Jane and Peter's identities on Facebook. We don't know exactly what this particular breach was, but we have known that it certainly has been happening and the court has made it very clear that if it continues, those people will be prosecuted. We did learn some new information this week about the ongoing investigation from the counsel assisting during his opening address, especially this new information about a car used in the suspected abduction of William. Tell us about that. That is the first time they've publicly stated that it is likely William was taken from the scene in a car because they have said before that he was most likely abducted, but they haven't said a lot about what they think actually happened. So that was an interesting thing for him to point out, and this is what he said. The conclusion that we will submit in due course, subject to any fresh evidence, is that William was taken from 48 Benaroon Drive or nearby on 12 September 2014 and removed from vicinity in all likelihood uh, in a car. That's a really interesting point, Leah, because William's foster parents have mentioned before that they saw cars in the street the day that William disappeared. Are they linked to this car that's been mentioned this week? The council assisting didn't say exactly why they believe William was taken away in a car, but it is interesting that there were three cars seen on the street the day that William disappeared. The two cars that Jane, William's foster mother, saw parked on the street just a few hours before he disappeared, as well as the car that she and Lindsay saw driving down the street when the kids were riding their bikes. 
the one that turned around and drove back the other way and she made eye contact with that driver. So there were certainly suspicious cars in the area that day. Whether that is why they believe this, it's hard to say at this stage. So we've had the confirmation that police do believe he was abducted, William was abducted and taken from his foster grandmother's front yard away from the scene in a car. But still almost five years later, police have no idea who may be responsible for that abduction. But this week we also heard some interesting insights and research into child abductions, didn't we? So the council assisting cited some international research during his opening address in regards to this case. And among the research that he mentioned, in 72% of child abduction and murder cases, the body recovery site was less than 200 feet from the abduction site. So that's an interesting thing to note considering they do believe now that he was driven away from the scene and perhaps isn't in the vicinity Um, He also said that in about 97% of these cases, it is committed by a family member or an acquaintance, and that only 3% of them are committed by strangers. So they do believe that William was abducted by someone he did not know? They believe that William could very well be in that rare 3% of cases where it is committed by a stranger. And counsel assisting also spoke about some interesting research on the profile of someone that may abduct a child. I quote as I did opening tranche one from Sprague's book, Investigating Missing, Missing Children Cases, a guide to first responders and investigators. Quote, an offender in an abducted child case can come in all shapes, sizes, and colours, genders, economic statuses, and could be the most inconspicuous person. We really don't know who the abductor will be. It could be the father, the mother, an uncle, an aunt, a family member, a neighbour, a friend, close or slight acquaintance, a person of trust or a stranger. The person may be unknown or known. Who really knows? Only the offender knows. There is no doubt that everyone in a missing child investigation is a suspect until proven differently. The offender in such crimes is a sneaky, complex offender who has hidden his or her desires for some time and has chosen to act on those desires. We also heard in that opening address that history shows that sometimes even those closest to these offenders that then go on and abduct children are shocked to find out that they could have committed these evil crimes. Yeah, and I think the point that he was making there was that these people can appear very normal and and that they can be living amongst us and we all have no idea that they're capable of this and that this means that it could be anyone. That anything is possible. Somewhat alarmingly, in such cases, these authors state that Quote, it is not uncommon for family, neighbours and friends to comment after the apprehension of such a perpetrator that they would never have guessed he was capable of committing such an atrocious crime, close quote. Leah, we know now that it's highly possible William could be in that very rare 3% of abduction cases, which is by a stranger. And that's what makes this case so difficult to crack because it is a stranger, we still don't know who it is, and there is no forensic evidence and no key eyewitnesses. 
Yeah, and we've mentioned before in previous episodes just how rare and difficult this case is, that this was committed in broad daylight, no one saw or heard anything, and that all the people closest to him, being his foster parents and birth parents, were then ruled out by the lead investigator. Given the circumstances of William's disappearance, police were confronted with a case at the very top of the scale of difficulty. There were no eyewitnesses, no forensic evidence. Worldwide, these cases have proven to be the most difficult to solve. During the opening address, counsel assisting the coroner in some parts was incredibly pessimistic about finding William or finding who was responsible. But on the other hand, that's the whole point of this coronial inquest, that New South Wales police are adamant, they mentioned this week, that they can solve William's disappearance, his case. Yeah, they say they still don't know what has happened to him and obviously that is not ideal almost five years later. They said that he very well may have been murdered, but they are confident that they can still find out what happened to him. And that's what's so important about this coronial inquest because they're hoping that somehow this may spark fresh leads or new information from many people that are set to testify. Further evidence may be found shedding a whole new light on the position of a person or persons. All aspects of the investigation remain open. No fixed views have been formed. Throughout this investigation, we've often heard many times about persons of interest or potential suspects. This week, the authorities used this opportunity as the coronial inquest resumed to exactly define what persons of interest mean. Yeah, so they spoke in court uh, on the first day about some witnesses already having been described publicly as persons of interest. And they made it clear that it shouldn't be assumed that that means they were involved in the crime or suspected of being involved in the crime. They also said that if the notion of being involved in this disappearance is put to them in a police interview, and perhaps that will come out as the inquest goes on, It may only have been done to gauge how they responded to that. It doesn't necessarily mean that police think that they are guilty. And, in fact, the counsel assisting said he expects to present evidence about certain people who have been labelled as persons of interest publicly that may suggest the opposite, that they didn't have anything to do with it. Characterising a person as a person of interest does not necessarily signify an active suspicion that a person committed a crime. It may signify no more than that the person was related to a possible victim of crime or knew the possible victim of crime or was in the vicinity of the possible victim of crime at a relevant point in time. Another feature of Tranche 2 concerns persons in respect to whom there have been suspicions raised and in some cases quite a degree of naming and shaming in the media. We expect to lead evidence from those persons that may add further insight upon the question whether some of those persons have further information concerning William's disappearance. In addition, we expect to lead evidence that tends to contradict the possibility that one or more such persons had some involvement or knowledge of the circumstances of William's disappearance. 
So let's go through the persons of interest or the witnesses that are set to be called to testify at this inquest because from what we can understand, the list has been issued and there are more than 50 witnesses set to give evidence. The witness list is extensive and that includes washing machine repairman Bill Spedding. We've mentioned him extensively in previous episodes. He attended William's foster grandmother's house in the days before his disappearance. His wife is also set to testify at the inquest and a man by the name of Tony Jones, who we've also previously mentioned, he was an associate of Bill Spedding and he was also a known pedophile who lived in a nearby town. Um, We mentioned also previously that his car was seized by the strike force and forensically examined. A neighbour who we've spoken about as well, Paul Savage, who lived across the road from William's foster grandmother's house, is also on the list and will testify at the inquest. There are a number of other locals who are set to testify and interestingly that includes a former Kendall resident who is currently in jail so he will be appearing at the inquest despite being in custody. Several people on that list are listed with pseudonyms which means they will be appearing anonymously. The reasons for that are not clear right now but will likely become clear as the inquest goes on. The current lead investigator, David Laidlaw, who took over from Gary Jubilant, is also on the witness list, so he will need to testify about what he knows. Interestingly, though, not on the list is Gary Jubilant. Why? I can't say why he isn't, but what I can say is that the foster parents, as they mentioned in previous episodes, were desperate for him to be called as a witness. They wanted to ensure that all the knowledge he has was not lost and that he could contribute to this inquest. However, it seems at this stage he will not be involved in this inquest. You mentioned earlier, Leah, though, that list could change. Could we see at the end of the inquest that former Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubilant as you mentioned, who was head of the investigation for more than four years, could be called? Absolutely. The coroner and the council assisting can amend that list at any point and they may decide that Gary Jubilin should be called, that perhaps he does have information to add. All we do know at this point is that at this stage he is not on that witness list. So the council assisting is obviously hoping some new witness will provide some critical information that may be a breakthrough in this investigation. But I also understand some of these witnesses set to give evidence are asking for extra protection. So as I mentioned before, some of those witnesses that are already on the list are under pseudonyms and will be testifying anonymously. Um, And the council assisting spoke about the need for protection for some of these witnesses for various reasons, including their own personal safety, as well as protecting them from any prejudice. Um, We do know that just this week, at least one other witness has also applied to be anonymous and the coroner will make a decision as to whether that is justified. Um, And as each witness comes along, she will have to determine that on a case-by-case basis. Why would they fear for their safety? Is this usual in a coronial inquest? It's possible that if uh, it's a controversial um, topic or perhaps the witness is somehow going to be incriminated, that maybe they do need prote- protection for their um, their own safety. But as I said, that'll become more apparent um, as these witnesses testify. During these first couple of days of the coronial inquest, we've also found out more detail about the extensive search conducted for William in not only those initial first days after he disappeared, but the huge search that was conducted in 2018. 
So last year, um, when Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubilant was still leading the investigation, he conducted what he called a forensic search around the bushland in Kendall, and that was separate to the initial ground search. This involved specialist um, police officers who were um, tasked with doing a proper forensic search of the um, area surrounding where William disappeared, and that happened um, in the middle of last year and went for about four weeks. Final point about the search. Uh, We're going to ask a senior um, police search advisor whether, in his opinion, William's remains could be in the area searched in mid-2018 and simply have been missed. So is that a possibility, Leah, that William's remains are out there and they just haven't been found? So there was a lot of testimony this week around this search and that was all to prove once and for all that William didn't wander into the bush and simply got lost and has never been found, as was mentioned, that he was taken away from the area and that is why this search was conducted. So the testimony was very extensive as to how thorough this search was. It talked about the methods of searching, the line searches, the grids, the GPS tracking, and they went through every little bit of debris that they found on the ground. They used chainsaws to get through all of the um, bushland, which was very dense, and used tools to scrape the ground and then look through all the debris. So basically they were trying to prove that the search was thorough enough that they can conclusively say that if William was out there, they would have found him. So the search required about 30 to 40 officers per day who all specialised in searching and it ran for four weeks. And they were searching for clothing matching the Spider-Man suit or the sandals that William was wearing when he disappeared. And the court heard that they made many finds during this search which could potentially have been promising and that included bones, a spear gun, toys, backpacks, they also found a grave site which had a cross pegged into it, um, a cross made out of timber. And on that cross, it had written on it a date in 2014. And they dug that up because obviously that was the year that William went missing. Went missing. And so it, it really sparked their interest there and they had to carefully dig that up. Uh, and in that grave, they found something small wrapped in plastic, which turned out to be um, a pet dog grave. And that was quite close to the cemetery, which is behind William's foster grandmother's house. And we heard in court that apparently a lot of local residents do tend to bury their pets around that cemetery. They also found a shovel near the cemetery, which they said was possibly an old grave digger's shovel. And despite some of these items, which seemed quite promising, Obviously, they were all tested and none of them related to William's disappearance. So as I said before, research shows that an extremely high percentage of bodies in murder cases are found close to the abduction site and they also said that they're found near roads or tracks and that's obviously convenience for the person who is disposing of those remains. So the search did concentrate quite a lot around the areas near any um, walking trails or roads. Uh, And during the search as well, it was said in court that a man actually approached searchers, a local man, um, to say that someone had been moving some tombstones around in that cemetery and he thought that might have been related. They didn't say what the result of that was, whether they found the person who was moving those tombstones, but 
Given nothing of relevance was found in that extensive four-week search, the court heard from several witnesses that the conclusions that they drew from that was that William was not anywhere in that search area and therefore he must have been taken away from the area. If he was taken away from the scene in a car, he could be anywhere. That's right, and that's one of the reasons why this search was done to conclusively say that he was taken far away from where he was abducted. You were in court this week, and as we've mentioned, William's family, his birth parents, his foster parents were all there to hear this evidence. We have to remember that these are people hearing about their son who is still missing. How did they cope with it? As I said, his biological family and and foster family members were all in attendance at some point this week. Um, His biological mother attended on the first day and actually left before it even started, um, appearing to be quite upset. And that's completely understandable. I mean, this is such a difficult thing for a parent to go through, to hear all this evidence about your son who potentially may not no longer be alive um, and people are searching for his remains and it's just such a distressing thought so you can understand why it would have been difficult for her to sit through. Um, His biological father was there all week uh, and it was actually raised at the end of the hearing uh, at the end of the week that um, his lawyer mentioned that he can't afford to pay for accommodation when the inquest moves to Taree. Um, as we mentioned, the inquest will be held for a week in Taree, which is about 40-minute drive from Kendall, and that allows them to interview a lot of locals who still live in the area. Um, but unfortunately, Legal Aid have said that they won't pay for his accommodation to go and, and be there for that testimony. Um, and the coroner commented that she said, and this is a quote, that it seems wrong the father may not be able to attend. So they were going to try and find some sort of resolution to that. I'm sure for William's family, both his biological parents and his foster parents and all of his loved ones, they are so desperately hoping that this coronial inquest will start to answer some of the questions that we still don't know to this day where William Tyrrell is. This podcast has been about giving William a voice and William's foster parents have spoken very candidly to you about their concerns about the ongoing investigation, that this is about giving William a voice And they desperately hope that this coronial inquest will find something. Yeah, and they have not lost hope that this inquest could still bring some new leads and they want to remind the public that this still is an active investigation and there is still hope and just plead with people that if they do know something, it is not too late to come forward. It's unsolved. So if people, if you still know or you suspect or you think someone's acting really weird, or even if somebody that's got mental health you think could have done something, you've got to call Crime Stoppers mm. because any tiny little piece of information it all helps. might actually just be the key that unlocks the whole thing. Yeah. And it's just one little thing that comes out. So it's it just call. You can do it anonymously. You don't have to say who you are or where you're from or give a phone number. It's that piece of information. So please, please do it. 
The coronial inquest into William Tyrrell's disappearance will continue over the next couple of weeks, including a special hearing in Tare in northern New South Wales, about 50 kilometres from where William disappeared almost five years ago. Leah will be in court every day and we'll keep you up to date with all these crucial developments in new weekly episodes of Where's William Tyrrell? Where's William Tyrrell? is produced and presented by Leah Harris and Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. You can contact the show at whereswilliam at network10.com.au. If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.whereswilliam.org. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.